everybody. This is the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hi there. How's it going? So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, lads and lassies, and those that don't prescribe to a gender, this is the podcast <laughs> meant at refreshing you a little bit on some of the Game of Thrones episodes that you may watch one, two, three times, dabbling in a little theories, a little speculation about season eight, which I'm being told is going to be released at some point. I'm a little skeptical. Um, and maybe make your morning or afternoon commute easier or your time at the gym a little more fun. Maybe make you laugh along the way. Spencer, anything you want to add? Well, I'll just add that, you know, HBO is providing us season eight, so we have a certain degree of reliability, at least more so than the books. So let's take comfort in that. Yeah, but it seems like Obama was still president when we had the uh, <laughs> season seven. I think it feels like uh, we're in the long night. <sighs> What's it supposed to be, February, April? They're constantly moving back the date. Well, for everybody listening out here, um, Spencer and me have been friends for a really long time, and we, after every Game of Thrones episode, would hold a call where we essentially do what we're about to do. Uh, we thought it would be fun to set up a podcast. This is our first podcast and our very first episode. So hang in there with us. We're going to do the best we can. Um, we're going to talk a little format. Uh, so the format of these episodes are going to be we start with a recap, uh, and, you know, break up those cobwebs and get everybody back on the same page about what actually happened in the episode. Then we're going to talk about some of the scenes, foundational scenes and the best scene. And we'll explain what that kind of difference is when we get there. I'll award a favorite line of the episode. I alone am able to do that. I am emperor when it comes to favorite line. I intend to contribute. And then at the end, um, we'll have a little segment called Book Nerd Bitching because Spencer is a certified card-carrying licensed book nerd. And every one of these calls we've ever had, he uses some book toy fact to poke holes in the show. So that's going to be his segment uh, to do that. So, Spencer, anything you want to add on the format? I would just note that I'm bluffing most of the book nerd bitching with you, and probably the internet's not going to let me get away with that. So we'll see how that goes. Oh, they're going to hate us in the comments section. Well, oh, my gosh. If fact, anybody ever listens, we're going to get crushed. The fact we exist earns our hate. But we'll give them actual <laughs> cause, too. Okay. All right. Well, let's get started with a recap. Um, we start with a cold opening. We don't get a lot of cold openings in Game of Thrones. Spencer, I think this is maybe only the second one. Uh, particularly for a season opening. It's, it was really kind of jarring and surprising that it just went in there with no introduction, no uh, lead-in. Kind of reminded yeah. me. Oh, let us back up. One thing we should have mentioned in the intro. Uh, because we are doing this podcast so long after season seven has aired, we're going to assume that you have caught up. So you have caught up to where the series stands at July 2018 and that you've read all the books. So if you don't fit in either of, the, either of those categories, time to bail out now. Come find us whenever you uh, get to that point. Anyway, back to the cold opening. Well, one thing just to add in advance is that, let's remember that, again, this season's coming off what was probably, the what would you say, the best season of the show, or at least very close to it? Yeah, season six was really, really strong. Um, the, uh, I, I was blown away by the wins of winter, um, which I'm talking about the show. <laughs> <laughs> someday, someday for the book, too. Yeah, it's still it's still July 2018, so I've not been blown away by books of uh, the Winds of Winter book. But the Winds of Winter episode was incredible. I thought it was shot beautifully. I thought they progressed the story well. I loved the music. I mean, these are things everybody's already said. Uh, I'm not I'm not breaking any new ground here, but just kind of setting up for the beginning of season seven. We come on the heels of a real high point in the series. Oh, and, and even that was coming off pure fan service bliss in terms of the Battle of the Bastards, which. 
some people have accused the show at times of being kind of losing its plot points, going, moving so far beyond what the structure of the book said that they're kind of just treading water. Those last yeah, two like episodes you. were just such people a... People like you. Yeah, yeah, I'm here first and foremost to say I have said that repeatedly, but those last two episodes were a delightful slap to my face in terms of just saying, bitch, we got this. We have, we have an understanding of the plot, we have an understanding of direction, we have an understanding of how to bring it together in a cinematic format that even the books can't fully conceptualize. So I was astounded, it was wonderful, and then we moved into season seven with pretty high expectations of what it could bring. Right, and so we open with cold opening. Mm-hmm. Um, it appears that Walter Frey is holding a feast for what appears to be most of the Frey family. We know because they have those stupid hats. Which is confusing, given what happened at the end of season six. Right, so he, you know, last we saw Walter Frey, he was eating a little Frey pie. Mm-hmm. He was eating a little... Um, Dungy fingernail. Uh, he saw Arya Stark. She slit his throat, mm-hmm. uh, and she uh, she walks out. So to have a cold opening with Walter Frey holding a feast, a uh, little jarring. So I, I, I admit when I first watched this, I didn't quite know what was going on. I thought we could potentially be in flashback territory, mm-hmm. which Benioff and Weiss really don't, don't like to do. I think they've only done it maybe once or twice. They did it with um, Maggie the Toad. Is that her name? Yeah, the uh, sorceress that gave uh, Cersei a prediction. And, and then, of course, with Rhaegar and Lyanna. And also with the Tower of Joy last season. But that was a different kind of flashback in terms of using Bran's visions. Exactly. So I thought we might be in flashback territory. Didn't really know what was going on. But Walter Frey stands up. He starts a toast. Um, and he admits that he's kind of a prickly guy, but, you know, he loves his family. He's proud of everybody. Which should, should have been our first hint that something was off. Yeah, it was a little out of character. It was not on brand for Walter Frey. <laughs> Uh, and he, he raises the toast. Um, the, the phrase drink, he noticeably does not drink. Mm-hmm. And he turns and looks at his wife, which, by the way, his wife is of an age that, like, if you were just doing a Reddit comment on this, it would just be, bruh. <laughs> oh, my God. This girl looks like 12. Like, that was a really uncomfortable moment. It, it is uh, consistent he, for him. He, says, he snaps to her and says, you know, I'm, you shouldn't waste. We're not going to waste good wine on a woman. Um, so she doesn't drink. So the only two people we see that don't drink are Walter and his bruh mm-hmm. wife. Mm-hmm. At that point, Walter continues his speech, but it starts to take a different turn. He starts to say, hey, you know, I'm proud of everything we've done. I'm proud that we, you know, killed a son in front of his mother. We killed a pregnant woman. He starts to go list all the atrocities that the phrase have done, but specifically the atrocities about the Starks. Mm-hmm. This is where it, it all starts to turn. Then you see the phrase start to cough. Some of them are spitting up blood. And then Walter delivers a really solid line. Leave one wolf alive and the sheep are never safe. And that's the point. I think most of us got clued in about what was going on. Mm-hmm. But as the phrase started to fall down, you see the hand come up. Da lucha libre. Arya Stark pulls the mask off. Oh, my God. It was Arya all along. Mm-hmm. Phrase are dead. She turns, she looks at the bro- wife and says, when people ask you what happened to you, tell them the North remembers. Tell them when to came, the house Frey. Spot on Mazzy Williams impression. impression. I'm impressed. <laughs> Thank you. I've been working on it. And then the girl shoots uh, uh, Arya a look like she just like this is like the I just saw like Justin Bieber for the first time. Right. It's like <laughs> you are the coolest person <laughs> I've ever seen. Oh, my God. And then Arya strolls out. I'm weaving among all of the dead phrase. 
boom, smash cut to dum dum da da dum dum da da dum dum. We got the opening sequence. Mm-hmm. Spencer, anything you want to say about this uh, scene? I mean, I'll address some of it in book nerd bitching in terms of, again, the inconsistency and just lack of lead in to what Ari's abilities as a proto faceless man are. But I found it interesting the scene implied that she had none of the serving girls working with her. I mean, look, looking back with all the serving girls moving around, delivering the wine, I thought maybe she'd gotten some degree of coordination and some kind of inter-house revolt. But the serving girls looked just as horrified as everybody else at what was happening. So it's interesting. They did, but they didn't drink the wine. They didn't drink so the she, wine. She had, she had engineered it such that the serving girls wouldn't die. The, perhaps we're not in the loop as to what, would, what was about to occur. But, right. But it, I it, she, and I don't think she should have from a risk perspective, right? I mean, like, you don't know. One of them might have blabbed. I, I mean, we, we, we've been talking about on the show and everything else the idea that there would be a counter-red wedding. And so this was the fan service moment. This was House Frey uh, being punished for their crimes. Though, as a this is a key theme I think this episode's going to go into a great deal, is to what degree revenge and justice are opposed to each other, can work together, and to what degree revenge is actually the antithesis of justice. And I think this scene embodies Arya's answer to that question. Yeah, and Arya specifically really rides that line. I find myself sometimes being really sad for her and horrified at what she's kind of become, but then also, you know, just cheering on what she's actually accomplishing. Mm-hmm. And it gets more extreme over this season. We'll talk about it as we go through more of the episodes. But this season really likes to portray Arya kind of for the first time as being almost like a Terminator of being utterly cold, almost emotionless, almost incapable of interacting normally with other people, which we'll talk about that scene involving the Lannister soldiers here in a little bit. Uh, I don't know if that's really consistent with the past few seasons, but it's definitely something that they amped up with both her and kind of Bran throughout the season. So we're, we're going to see more of that. Yeah. Well, and, and when we get to Book Nerd Bitchin' and you start complaining about the powers of the faceless men, I want to remind you that it, she's not a faceless man. She's a lucha libre. And if you've ever watched Mexican professional wrestling, they can wear any mask they want and take on any personality they want, which is very consistent with Ari's abilities here. So and, just making that clarification. And presumably the lucha libres bring their masks with them when they go to these events, that they have them pre-prepared. This is the first time we've seen one knit one almost on stage and put it on and have that work. Yeah, it's a boss move for sure. We'll address that. Moving on. All right, we get to the opening sequence. I feel like we had a real missed opportunity here. I know that fans bitch and complain about the opening sequence all the time, but Spencer, why isn't there a Lannister sigil over King's Landing? I mean, the opening sequence, particularly in the first few seasons, was great. It was constantly revealing new little tidbits about where things would go. We outright cheered last season in episode 10 of when House Stark's emblem appeared again over Winterfell. At this point, they're keeping the Baratheon Sigil over King's Landing, I guess, because... Actually, there is no reason. I mean, Cersei's the only one that's left. There is no and one else. she's very much just the Lannister now. She's not a rock. She's rocking the Lannister uh, Sigil. She's got the Lannister army. There's, there's no trace of Baratheon anywhere. Yeah, there's only Lannister troops in that room. They're not. There's no, there's no uh, you know, antlers on anything. And there's no imagery. There's no sigildry. She's just fully, purely Lannister. No one's buying any bluff anymore that the Baratheons are still in charge. Anyway, missed opportunity. Yeah. All right, we, we go through the opening sequence, um, which still gives me chills all these years later. I yeah. know I'm a dork for that, but it does. It's wonderful. We cut to north of the wall, where the White Walkers are on the march. Um, here, you know, not much happens. I think that you're they're just trying to remind you of the might of the White Walkers, and I think also showing you that now we have giant whites, which I counted three, but I think the implication is there's probably more. Which, you know, this opens up the possibility of many other reanimated things that we haven't seen before. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, could be bears, could be spiders. 
Hold it up! Hold it up! Oh, God, that's going to hurt if that ever happens. I know. I know, man. Get your Kleenex ready. All right, and then we cut to um, right uh, at the wall, but still north of the wall, and Bran and Mira Reed, who is the real MVP, um, are... How far did she drag him? Mira Reed is the best of the best. She's from Goodstock. I don't know what they got going down there where they're gigging frogs and they're throwing poison at people, but my God, she is amazing. She's the real MVP. I know her brother was capable of prophecy, but has he been training her for like the last 20 years to drag a increasingly large childish man thing across frozen landscapes? Because that is impressive. The what, hundred miles she just dragged him? Yeah. So I think like if you're just, just talking athletically, follow me here. Mm -hmm. Just athletically. Mira Reed. The Serena Williams of Westeros, right? Entirely, which makes what happens to her later in the season all the more unacceptable. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Anyway, uh, Dolores Ed um, opens the gate. It looks like he's the new Lord's Commander. He's got the he's got the cape, right? Or the the the, the, the donnings of the Lord Commander. Which they hinted at last season, where uh, one of the uh, guards comes up to him after John, everybody leaves, and says, "Should we close the door, Lord Commander?" And he turns and says, "I'm not the Lord." And then kind of thinks to himself, says, "Oh shit, there is no one left at this point." So yeah. yes. So he looks like he's the Lord Commander. He's a little reluctant um, to believe that Bran and Mira are who they say they are until Bran uses the Whisper Net to remind Dolores Dolor- Ed of all the things that he's seen and that the White Walkers exist. At which point Dolores Ed looks confused uh, on Bran for him as well, mm-hmm. um, lets them through and closes the gate. Which I think is actually, in some ways a delightful uh, consistency at this point of where apparently the calling card of House Stark to convince everyone that you are a Stark is to start saying really strange things about dead people. That that's enough. If you've said that, you've said your shibboleth, and you can come in. Well, you got to think this is a world of very imperfect information. Yes. And if somebody you never met before can tell you to the detail specific events that you and you alone, or you with just a small group of people, encountered, you'd have to just go, yeah, well, whatever, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I have I have determined you are weird and vaguely magical. Eh, probably close enough. Come on in. Yeah, we got to let you in. Okay, well, yeah, good move by Delaware said there. I'd have been a little disappointed in him if he left Bran out in the, uh, beyond the wall. It wouldn't have been in character. He, I mean, he's been, with, he's been with John's right arm for all of his expeditions to help the wildlings. He's a good guy. All right. Next scene, we cut to John with the Northern Lords. And I got to tell you, before we get into the substance of this scene, I just think that the room that they shoot these, you know, these scenes with John and the Northern Lords is just really beautiful, and it, it's exactly how. When I was reading the books, I envisioned Winterfell to look. Yeah, it, it, it is a wonderful shot of this kind of like hold fast hearth room that is just loaded up with all the various lords coming out of the rafters. I, I, I very much enjoy the scenes that they do there. Yeah, and we we, we have a sh- uh, the, the scene starts with John at the head of the table with Sansa. And if you've noticed, with the, it seems like in the north, the more powerful you are, the more clothes you get. Because <laughs> John's got like fourteen sweaters on here. That, that's true to life. Come on, there there is a there is a bling element even in the medieval ages. That's right, John's blinged out. I like it. All right, he's flossing. How many wolves um, so, died for that outfit? <laughs> so John's uh, with the Northern Lords, um, and the first thing he starts talking about is the threat beyond the wall because mm-hmm. this is what John's obsessed with. Um, he mentions Dragonglass, and he wants all of their maesters to scourge uh, all of their records uh, to uh, find as much Dragonglass as possible. Um. At that point, he starts talking about how we need to train all of the men uh, and women, mm-hmm. and then um, he clarifies that it's not just men and women. This is when he was talking with um, 
I think House Glover, the Lord of House Glover. Yep. Um, he mentions, you know, we're not just going to train men and women here. We're going to train boys and girls, which Lord Glover took offense to. He did something along the lines of, you want me to put a spear in my granddaughter's hand? And then our hero from Bear Island stands up Little uh, and exclaims, I don't need your permission to defend the North. And that was that, because no one argues with her. Uh, and so um, it's all decided that everybody in the North is going to be trained, boys and girls alike. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, for House Mormont, is no particular issue. I mean, little Liana most likely had the same training regime that her that her mom, that her various sisters all had. That The Mormonts have been fighting against the wildlings, men and women both, for thousands of years. For them, this is just another Tuesday. I can just imagine Liana Stark, like, yelling at John, like, One baby from Bear Island is worth four babies from anywhere else. <laughs> You know, at this point, she can back whatever whatever she wants. If you're in a, ever in a situation of where, what is she, 10, 11-ish? If, in yeah. any situation of where a 10, 11-year-old stands up, says three words, and everyone is in silent respect, that 11-year-old needs to be listened to. <laughs> Respected, followed. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's badass. So uh, then the conversation goes to what are we going to do with the Umbers of Last Hearth and the mm-hmm. Starks of Carhold? Um, at first, uh, the suggestion is to knock the castles down, which Sansa uh, immediately uh, shoots down, smartly, yeah. I believe, yeah. uh, and says, we're going to need the castles, but we should give them to families who were loyal to us when we were fighting Ramsay Bolton. Mm-hmm. John counters and says, um, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to uh, give Last Hearth back to the Umbers and give Carhold back to the Karstarks. Um, which is their rightful place. They've been there for thousands of years. And Sansa argues with this. She says something along the lines of, oh, so there's no punishment for treason and no reward for loyalty. John gets a little flustered. He mentions, I was Lord Commander once, which he seems to do anytime he's backed in a corner. Uh, and ends with, uh, that's my decision and my decision is final, which I'm pretty sure that's how kings work. Mm-hmm. Uh, she shuts up. Uh, the kids bend the knee and everybody cheers. Yep, and this is a scene I adore, and we'll talk about this for best scenes. If we're neither of them is giving bad advice, neither of them is making an in, is presenting an incorrect option for how they can resolve the situation. But the decision John makes is just so perfectly in character, and so fully demonstrates himself as Ned Stark's successor. It's just such a wonderful Starksian moment. And Sansa calls that out in the ensuing conversation because, as most conversations with Sansa go, Sansa's not happy. Um, her and John are bickering about um, it, the decision that John had made. John specifically believes that um, Sansa was made to undermine me. You undermine me. He said that multiple times. Um, Sansa pulls a little, you know, mental gymnastics here because she starts out really challenging him. At one point, even comparing him to Joffrey, which really mm-hmm. put John off. And he goes, "You really think I'm Joffrey?" And she says, oh, you're not Joffrey. You're the farthest thing from Joffrey. But then she flips it, and then he gets mad. They get quiet, and she just goes, you know, you could this. And that really put me off. I was kind of like, you just, <laughs> just, you just compared him to Joffrey, and now you're like, you're really good at this. It's almost like in the corporate world when you, they teach you to deliver bad advice. It's like start with a compliment, do mm-hmm. the bad advice, end with a compliment. Mm-hmm. She switched <laughs> she was, up the she order there. The back of that sandwich right there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Not much to discuss here other than the fact that, you know, it's clearly there's a little bit of a push-pull here on Sansa's role, and John's still very new to being a king. I think he's still kind of feeling himself out. I will say, and Spencer, tell me if this is unfair, I just feel like every time Sansa is in a conversation with somebody, she's not happy. When was the last time you saw her smile? Like, I think it was like when she was at the Erie eating lemon cakes, right? 
Well, I mean, I can, and it's a, it's a demonstrative of where her character is now. The last moment she smiled was when she turned around and left Ramsey to be eaten by his hounds. Good point. She did smile there. I, although I'm not really putting that, you know, in the sort of <laughs> that, in the feels moment. Although it was, that, it, was that, it was it was it was just and necessary. But that's not healthy smile territory at that point. And <laughs> it, it, it's it's we'll talk about this in book nerd bitching. It's a demonstrative of where it's consistent with the character that they've portrayed in terms of this Sansa has gone through the ringer. She has very little to smile about as a character. She is a jumbled collection of pain where the main people she's learned from the last four years are Cersei and Littlefinger. This is a dark and twisted person who is leading this house, at the, well, among the leaders of this house at this point. You uh, you bite your tongue there. King John, I mean, King Snow, I mean, that's not right. Whatever his name is. Uh, he <laughs> good good is reference. He the house, at least for now. Thank yeah. you, thank you. All right, uh, so that scene ends, and then we go to King's Landing, mm-hmm. where Cersei um, is walking out on her freshly painted uh, floor map of Westeros. She would make and a Jamie, floor map. Yeah, say what? She would make a floor map. First royal know, decree. That's pretty baller. I liked it. No, yeah, no, it was impressive, but I, 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 I could picture her as her first decision saying, paint me everything I own so that I can stand atop it. I don't know. I mean, I think it's, if you're like trying to work out strategy and where you put your armies and who you ally with, it's kind of nice. You could just kind of stroll around. I don't know. I thought it made sense. I thought it was cool aesthetically too. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jamie walks into the mapper. Um, Cersei starts talking about all of her enemies, enemies to the east, enemies to the west. Uh, The only thing to really call out here in this monologue is that she seems to know that Tyrion was named um, Daenerys' hand. I don't know how she would get that information, which, you know, we can get into speculation here, but it starts... I start to question Varys. Who else could have told her that? And it, it definitely raises questions. The, the way the, she's getting information about Danny, about her, about her motion, about her movements, about who's with her, it suggests either a spy in the court or that information is traveling almost impossibly fast for her to get it. I mean, I don't. Yeah, it's totally in line with Varys playing both sides. I mean, I could see him doing that. Well, yeah, no, that would be an interesting addition to the character. After, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely possible. But anyway, uh, so yeah, she knows that uh, Tyrion has been named uh, Daenerys' hand. She calls Olenna an old cunt, and Jamie starts to talk to her about the ba- the position that they're in. And he does not seem to think it's a good one. He starts to tell her all of their weaknesses. At one point, Cersei kind of snaps and says, I'm the queen of the Seven Kingdoms. And yeah. Jamie immediately retorts, three at best. Great line. Which really struck me as something that Prince Philip has probably had to say to Queen Elizabeth <laughs> at some point in the last 60 years. You know? He's like England at best. Yeah. I, I rule the British Empire. Enjoy the Virgin Islands, my dear. <laughs> yeah, so it's really kind of putting a cap on the, the situation that they face. Which Jamie thing? does mention that the phrase have been eliminated, uh, so he knows that. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think, you know, in my mind, that should give Cersei a little bit more pause than it does, and I think that shows her arrogance. If somebody can stroll into the twins and poison and kill the entire Frey family, mm-hmm. You know, you got some pretty powerful enemies out there, and she seems to just dismiss it offhand. Which, um, I, I love that scene in terms of it's it's nice to see another character call out a character in power on their ignorance and bullshit. And Jamie does it wonderfully in that scene, and just breaking her down that we are in a horrendous position. You're queen of a rump kingdom. Which three kingdoms do you think he's talking about in terms of saying what their limited degree of influence is? Um, so... I mean, pro- I guess the Riverlands, definitely, though. Definitely um, the Stormlands. Yeah. 
And then what's the Lannister uh, uh, kingdom? The Westlands. The Westlands. And Dragonstone, maybe? Uh, I suppose. I mean, I guess the Riverlands, just because the Freys were in charge of it for them, but now that's gone to chaos with all the Freys dead. So it, when we're struggling to even think what she rules, this is not a, a Lannister position of power. Definitely the Stormlands and the Westerlands. Those two are definitely. Yeah. All right. Um, Jamie starts to t- talk about how they need allies. Uh, they walk outside. Uh, Cersei mentions that she's been paying, she paid attention to her father for all these years, so she already knew she needed allies. We look out and we see a whole bunch of ships. Jamie looks at the sigils, immediately notices that they're Greyjoys, mm-hmm. um, throws shade at the Greyjoys, talks about how they suck. Uh, they can only steal uh, and take things that they can't make themselves. And Cersei explains that it's not all of the Greyjoys, just Euron Greyjoy, uh, that she has called to King's Landing. Jamie makes some mention of, well, what, are they, what does this person want? What does Euron want? And Cersei strolls away, explaining that he is here for a queen. And then we cut to the scene of, uh, yeah, so a next... Well, the only thing I want to say here mm-hmm. is at the end of season six, mm-hmm. Euron is named um, King of the Salt Throne. <laughs> and immediately, Yara and Theon take all of his ships. He turns around, he screams, build me a thousand ships, and I'll take you to glory, or whatever the hell he says. Yeah. Now, the, the characters aren't 30 to 40 years older when a thousand ships actually show up. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I just got to think, like, Euron has, like, the Amazon Prime of Westeros. <laughs> he got that two-day shipping on those thousand ships, because that is a completely take-you-out-of-reality take detail. Yeah. That is just so beyond the pale that I try not to think about it, but give me a break. Yeah, we'll talk about it more in Book Nerd Bitching, but this... The only way this would work is if this is a video game and he has an endless money cheat code and has just been spamming the inner key to build more ships. Because that's right. Th- yeah. it, it even describes in the next scene as a windswept island. They don't even have the trees necessary to build this many ships. Yeah, it's like he's playing one of those like super popular like uh, like online games that like everybody's working together and then you can like you can buy resources instead of earn them. <laughs> He's, he's just like like he's just like Baron Trump, you know, just sitting there just buying everything, and they're like, how the hell? This is not fair. See, there's the trick. He's used all his years of piracy to use all those resources to then just buy in-game dollars. Clever. Very clever explanation. It's ridiculous, but I will say that the shot of the silence, right? Euron's ship. Very good. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful shot. And I, I found it interesting the red eye that they put again on the uh, the um the sail there right in the center, distinguish it from the other ships. It, it, it is a beautifully filmed shot, and we can, we're can we going to debate the logistics of it and book nerd bitching, but it is cert- like everything else this season that I shall never take away from, it's incredibly well-filmed set up, and the music works perfectly with it. Okay. Next we go to Euron. He's in the Great Hall. Mm-hmm. So she's got Lannister soldiers there. She's flanked by her Queen's Guard, which includes the Mountain and Jamie. Euron and her start talking, um, you know, at this point, like, can I do, can I do a sidebar, Spencer? Please. Sidebar real quick. Mm-hmm. Okay. For all my NBA heads out there, Euron's confidence here is at an all time high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just look at what he's wearing. He's wearing this ridiculous outfit. You have to have crazy confidence for that. <laughs> I couldn't help but notice someone on rewatch has really reminded me of Joel Embiid. Like, I feel like Euron's walking in there like, I am Joel Embiid. I am the process. You are trash. I am better than you. I am the best sailor in the seven seas and the narrow sea. All of the seas have a thousand ships. I am here for my Queen Riri. 
I am the best. Okay, best side. Another side tangent. The, the, the impressions are just MBA on point. Spencer, but my NBA heads there are gonna like that. Okay, again, we can add that element to the show in later episodes. Yeah, well, I think that what we should do is just anytime we have like a really digression like that, or I, it just invades it to my head because I'm looking at it, I'm like, man, that's that's Joel and B level confidence right there. Just just throw a sidebar. Just throw a sidebar up. I need I need to find an equivalent category of where you can talk for a few minutes and all I can do is smile and nod. But I'll find it. Don't worry. <laughs> I have right. no so, idea who Joel Embiid is. Joel Embiid, he's the process. Okay, so Euron's there. He's got his Hot Topic clothes on. That's been covered by many podcasts. He's talking to Cersei. He's telling everybody how great he is, how what a great sailor he is. At some point, Cersei makes the comment, you know, he's not very humble, which Euron retorts, which I thought was great. You're not humble either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you got, you're a queen of a great kingdom. Uh, no, he actually says, this was interesting. He says, you're a queen of a great nation. And I thought that was interesting. Do you think Euron didn't want to use the word kingdom because she's not a king so he just went with nation i noted that that was an interesting phrase that that's not even a, a word that would have been used at that period it's it's an interesting switch of words for him we've never even heard them use the word nation i don't think previously on the show it's yeah that I, that is worth pondering have we done a word search through the uh, a song of ice and fire text because i don't think nation ever comes up it's not a word your george r, r. martin uses I mean, I mean, nation, I don't think, emerged until the modern era. So, yeah, it's an interesting addition on his part, and we can ponder what exactly he's implying. Uh, it could be a cut against her, but he seems to reserve most of his cuts for Jamie during his speech. Yeah, because he has two good hands. Oh, that's a good line. Yeah, that was pretty great. Well, Euron asks for Cersei's hand in marriage. Cersei refuses, saying that he's not trustworthy. Euron doesn't seem particularly surprised about this and says that... His experience, the best way to a woman's heart, is a gift, so he promises not to return to King's Landing until he has a gift for her, and he walks out. Mm-hmm. End of scene. And, yeah. And you want to talk about here? Uh, uh, well, I'm going to reserve that line about two good hands for the quotes. If you don't bring it up, I'm definitely going to. Uh, yes, that's a very good one. Oh, can we go back a second? Sure. What? I'm, I missed this. Sorry, folks. This is the first podcast. We're talking about best lines, i got to throw in... The one um, where basically John, you know, really humbly asked the uh, the wildlings to go man East Watch by the Sea. Oh, God. This, yes, Thorman and gets Thorman a great just line. And goes, looks like we're the Night's Watch now. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible. And, and with just every other line involving Thorman, everyone around him just kind of looks vaguely uncomfortable for a minute. <laughs> Uh, such a great moment. Anyway, we should have covered it back then, but that definitely needs to be considered for favorite lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we get to Sam at Old Town, who is participating in a Westerosi version of Stomp. Uh, with a, some sort of real, like, rhythmic mashup of shit and stew Which that is a- I didn't like. I thought it was sort of weird. Um, my wife says it's one of her favorite... Uh, scenes of season seven. So we've gone back and forth on this. Where do you land on that scene? I, I will defend this scene. This is a very different kind of scene for them. I can't think of any other scene that's like, as you said, it's very stompish uh, in terms of almost like musical theater. I can't think of them ever doing a scene kind of like this on the show. Can you, I mean, I, I, it's pretty new. It's pretty inventive for them. And I kind of liked the reverse Hogwarts nature of it, where it's saying, oh, Sam's accomplished everything he wants. He's at the great university. He's going to learn all the knowledge in the world, maybe even magic and the secret to feeding his enemies. No poop and soup. Yeah, I do like that too. It's a little down to reality. Um, but the, the, I think they were going for some level of art there with the, the sound and the cuts. God knows how long it took them to produce that scene. It didn't do much for me, but I understand a lot of people in this fandom like it. Uh, once that the, the stomp routine is over, we see Sam with the Archmaester with a cadaver. 
Um, Sam asked if the Archmaester would reconsider his proposal. The Archmaester doesn't remember what his proposal is. <laughs> Very true to life. Real, real alpha male move there. Real yeah. alpha move. <laughs> and it's every conversation I've had with a boss, hey, what do you think of my proposal? Could you repeat it to me again? Okay, that says where we are. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was a, that's a real alpha move. So Sam has to has to remind him of what his offer is or his proposal is, and his proposal is because of what he's seen uh, in the north, uh, you know, with the the White Walkers and the King, uh, Knights King. He wants access to the restricted area. The Archmaester immediately retorts, "The restricted area is for maesters. Are you a maester?" Sam says no, and he goes, "Well, it's not a very good proposal, is it?" Again, alpha move. The mm-hmm. Archmaester. Oh my gosh, he is in Sick command birds. of the room. Ah oh, man, he's just. He's just throwing them bows everywhere. The Archmaester, this is something I noticed uh, that I literally huddled over laughing when I watched it. The liver that he pulls out of this cadaver, he says, <laughs> he says it's a drinker's liver, right? So we're supposed to know this guy is probably an enlarged liver. He may have died from some level of liver disease. But he pulls a bear liver out of this man. <laughs> yeah. That thing was colossal and... Then he immediately says, weigh it. Sam should have been like, I need bricks to weigh this fucking thing. <laughs> and it, it is just the most cirrhosis thing I've ever seen in my life. I, it, it is just such a perfect exaggeration of the most worst possible drinker's liver you can imagine. I don't think, I mean, I don't think that that's even reasonable for a, for a drunk. I mean, that, that, that liver that he pulled out was preposterous. But anyway, he's, the Archmaester seems much more concerned with weighing the various organs of this deceased uh, maester than, than fielding the questions of Sam. But at one point, Sam gets kind of rough with him, and he says, Luke, I've seen it. I'm telling you, I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And the Archmaester actually says, you know what, I believe you. Um, the simplest explanation for why you're so insistent about this is that you actually did see what you said you saw. Mm-hmm. But then he goes on this diatribe, which, you know, if the Archmaester is supposed to be this, one of the smartest, most learned, most logical you know, probably some level of medicine, history, philosophy, training. This diatribe threw me out of it because he just goes, you know, when Robert's Rebellion was raging, everybody said the end was near. How could how could things go on? And we were fine. And then when Aegon Targaryen came with his dragons to take over Westeros, everybody said, you know, we're we're all going to die. How can this how can this go on? Nothing happened. It's a long night happened. And then he says, we can be. We can forgive them for actually thinking that was the end, but it wasn't. Through it all, the wall has stood. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. Like, I just thought it was preposterous. Like, who, who, who says that? Who goes like, look, every war we've ever fought, we've won, so we're going to win the next one. Yeah, it, it's the constant fallacy of that what has happened before will always govern the future. It's a very conservative, history-focused mindset, which kind of befits – the uh, the Meisters in terms of how they view the world and how they understand it that past events govern future go- govern future progression. Its mistake is assuming though that there can't be that one event that entirely changes the paradigm. That if you literally know that something that hasn't happened, I mean, how long it was the long night like ten thousand, twenty thousand years, fading into the history of time. If that event is being repeated with any degree of matching what is in the old myths, anything you know about the last few thousand years of history means jack shit in terms of what what ability you have to overcome it. I feel like there's one or two things happening here. Either that Archmaester is that pompous and that sort of ridiculous, mm-hmm. or he know, he does believe Sam, but he knows he's not going to get all the Maesters to buy into this. The Maesters don't, they, they, they don't like, they're, they're like, they treat magic like the Baptist drink, 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 right? Like they're not, you can't go into a Baptist church and be like, Hey, look, I had a beer. It's really good. Everybody should have one. Mm-hmm. They're all just going to say no. Even if you're the, 
you're, you're the preacher. Same thing with the archmaester. If he goes into the, the great hall or wherever with the maesters and go, hey, there's a, a magical army of undead walking to take down the wall and kill us all, the maesters are going to be like, mm, I don't think so. So I think he, he knows he couldn't even sell it to his populace even if he wanted to. Which is definitely possible, but it suggests that he may be doing something behind the scenes, which we'll have to keep track of in terms of uh, what the Meisters of the world could be doing to assist our heroes. Uh, he right. he does have a great line, which I do as a you know as a person who's fond of history, who's fond of knowledge. I think I loved his line about "We are this world's memory. Without us, men would be dogs." And I think that is a good line and very much a statement for what the Meisters stand for. And. Uh, is a, a nice little, um, nice little real-world plug for universities. I thought it, the flaw in it, though, the flaw in it, though, is that they have the knowledge, they have the memory, and they keep it in a locked vault that they don't share with the world. Your memory is useless if it's locked away in your mind. Yeah, the Maesters are a self-important bunch. Mm-hmm. Okay, into that scene and the the bear liver, and we cut to uh, Winterfell. Looks like at the training yard, Brienne and Podrick. Are, uh, are sparring. Uh, Brienne, of course, is kicking his ass. At one point, Brienne looks away, and Podrick gets a little shot in, so she just kicks him down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> really much like Nat and a fly, or, you know, swatting at a gnat or a fly or something like that. There's some pride um, there. Yeah, and then Tormund comes up, and Aww. potential favorite line alert, looks at Podrick, who's on the ground, clearly hurting, and just goes, you're a lucky man. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know if they ever intended this when they were writing the plot line for either of these characters, if they just stumbled across it, but Tormund and Brand is one of the greatest things this show has offered. My understanding is that no one had written that, that had not been talked about in the writer's room or on set, but when Brienne walked, you know, rode into Winterfell the first time with Sansa, mm-hmm. um, that the actor, Tormund, just shot that look and no one expected. He just did it and everyone fell out on set laughing. And from then on, it was like, okay, this is a thing. I fully believe it. I, and the next scene that we saw the two of them is when they're at the dinner table together and he's across from her. I would love the stage directions for how he was to eat that chicken because he's outright molesting a chicken while he's staring at her. He really was. It's, it, it stirs the britches the way he was eating that chicken. Well, anyway, uh, then we come up to Sansa, but if you notice, Tormund goes over to talk to Brienne for a while, which that's what I really want to hear. Oh, I want to be flying the wall for that. Not more moody Sansa. But anyway, Sansa's up there. She's looking at the training. Overcomes Littlefinger. Mm-hmm. Now, Littlefinger is trying to have a conversation with her, and, and Sansa's being outright rude. Now, let me just digress a little bit here. I'm gonna, I'm sidebarring here, Spencer. Okay. You, Sansa, escaped Ramsay. You went to your brother, who... Yeah. Raised an army, mm-hmm. came down, fought Ramsay, was dead in the water, completely mm-hmm. surrounded, had lost. You were going to go back to Ramsay, in rides the Lords of the Vale, wouldn't be there without Littlefinger, saves the day. Littlefinger keeps the Lords of the Vale there because John tells everybody we need as big an army as we can to fight the White Walkers. And yet still, Sansa is being moody and dismissive of Littlefinger despite the fact that he has saved her life on multiple occasions and has a sizable amount of her king's army. Sansa, you need to put respect on that man's name. Littlefinger <laughs> has, has uh, I, in my mind, he has paid his debt. Okay. She, I think she's being really rude to him here. Uh, here's Counterpoint. The, here's the problem. Here's the problem. You're starting this day at noon. I want you to start this day at 8 o'clock. At 8 o'clock, Littlefinger was the one who sold her to Ramsay in the first place. This is not a situation which engenders trust about his future ability to work with you in a way that benefits you both equally. This is not a man you can trust, and if she asked any questions of the Lords of the Vale, they would know. She would know. Everyone would know. 
that no one likes him. Bronzion Royce would kill him in a heartbeat at a second glance. Littlefinger's role in this transaction is nothing more than to make people second-guess and question themselves, and she should have knifed him long ago before we even made it to this point. And I have no idea why I went full New York in that sentence. Yeah, you really did. Um, like you were ordering a, a slice of pie there. Um, I don't know, man. I think that you're using a lot of book context there because I don't, I don't know anything in the show that tells us that people knew what Ramsey was. How could they not? Littlefinger supposedly is the you know, the source of information for the world. Are we suggesting that he's incompetent enough that he would not have known what Ramsay was capable of? They could not have hidden that. Roose's biggest complaint about Ramsay is that he doesn't keep his perversions and and uh, outright murderous tendencies secret enough. Yeah. Well, I'll end the sidebar here. But yes, he did sell her to Ramsay Bolton. But yes, he also did steal her back from the Lannisters. So he took her from a bad situation, put her in a bad situation, and then took her out of a bad situation again. I'm just saying, little respect would be nice. Little respect! And I'm just saying, Sansa, recognize gaslighting for what it is. This is what this man does to you on a daily basis. Uh, okay. Uh, potential favorite line scene here. Oh, yeah. um, Sansa says, no need to claim the last word, Littlefinger. Uh, or no, no uh, reason to claim the last word, Lord Baelish. I'm sure it's something clever. That was a great line. That was a wonderfully yeah. dismissive line. Littlefinger leaves. Brienne talks with Sansa. Brienne, in her stoic, skeptical look <laughs> that she keeps 90% of the time in this show, yeah. um, says something along the lines of, what does he want? And Sansa says, I know exactly what he wants. We're led to believe that he wants himself some lemon cake. Uh, and Brienne voices many of my concerns about why in the hell are you keeping him here? To which Sansa responds with most of your thoughts that he gave us the Lords of the Vale. They're here because he's here. We got to tolerate him. Mm-hmm. All right. Then we move on to Arya. She's in the woods. She comes across a band of Lannister soldiers. I think you're supposed to be a little concerned here, uh, but the Lannister soldiers. Um, For the Lannister here, soldiers or Arya? Uh, I think I think if you were an Arya fan here, you're supposed to be a little concerned that she's come across Lannister soldiers. I take your point. She just killed all of the phrase. I'm pretty sure she can handle these clowns. But you're thinking there might be a, a conflict that comes up here. But, you know, then we kind of zone in, on, uh, zoom in on the Lannister soldiers there around campfire. And someone is singing, the hands of gold are always cold, but the woman's hands are warm. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's mm-hmm. my Ed Shireen impression. Cut to Ed Shireen. I didn't know who this guy was the first time I watched it. We are it, so uh, old. Apparently, exploded. apparently this guy's really big. Appar- I, I've, nev- I've never even heard of him. I think I'd heard a couple of his songs, but is this just an indicative of we're an entirely gif- different generation than who matters now? Well, Spencer, we are doing a Game of Thrones podcast here, so I wouldn't necessarily call us the most hip of characters. <sighs> okay. Ow. Okay. We're here now. Go on. <laughs> um... <clears throat> Excuse me, the Lannister soldiers offer Arya some food. She says, I wouldn't steal your food. They say you're not stealing, we're offering. Um, Arya sits down. It lo- <clears throat> Excuse me, it looks like they only have one rabbit for like eight people, so they're going to sleep hungry. Generous guys. That one rabbit is getting shared around with her to start. And through the conversation, it becomes apparent that these are just kids or young males that are fighting someone else's war. They're not bad people. They miss their family. They know that the side they're fighting for is kind of ridiculous that the whole thing is kind of ridiculous. My only beef with this scene is that they really beat you over the head with uh, not all Lannisters are bad. Because like every line is like, I wish I could see my pop. He's out in the boat. And I wish I was with him. Yeah, it, and he's like, I have a, I have a daughter now. Or no, I have a, a child now. Mm-hmm. Boy, a girl. You think soldiers get ravens from home? 
<laughs> yeah. like it's, every line is just being, you know, I think they could have accomplished this humanizing of the Lannister soldiers uh, in a less ham-handed way. What do you think? It is as subtle as a sledgehammer, which is kind of sad that that's about the best the show can offer, but it, it is an important scene. It is keeping to very much the theme of the episode between the initial scene with Arya, between the scene, the various scenes going back and forth between John and Sansa, and here now, about understanding how justice can be a nuanced thing. That just simply making revenge on everyone equally for the crimes of their quote-unquote fathers, be they actual fathers or lords, is not necessarily the best way of events that may only make things worse. And you can see Arya throughout the scene is getting increasingly either conflicted or pissed off that she's getting that she's having qualms about killing these people. She clearly sat down with the intention of, okay, I'm now going to kill you all. Oh shit, you're offering me bread and you're offering me salt and salt and wine or bread and water, whatever else. Mm, that's making it harder for me to kill you. Oh shit, now you're all talking about your kids and your dads and the blackberry wine you just made. No, you're Ed Sheeran and you're singing. <sighs> I can't kill you, can I? Alright. Uh tangent. Mm-hmm. Um, sidebar. Do you think what do you think the percent chance there is that Maisie Williams took a pass at Ed Sheeran uh, on set? <laughs> Okay, she is, appa- she is apparently, from what we have now read about this guy, of the generation that views him as just utter catnip. So high, very high. At the, at, the, at the very least, there was that little younger girl, kind of nervous, flirting, wanting to be close to him and talk about his music. I guarantee that happened to some degree. Yeah. I mean, like, I think about it, like, like for me, right? Like, if I was, like, in my day, like, my day, when I was in my 20s, like my my the person I really like the most, I, my sort of like poster on the wall is Kira Knightley. Like Kira Knightley's gorgeous. And if I was like a overall B level actor, but was on a really popular show, mm-hmm. and the producers and director were like, "Hey, we you know we did you a favor. We brought on Kira Knightley for a scene." There's no way I wouldn't have walked over and been like, "So, uh, what are you doing later?" You would you wouldn't have, you have to. Yeah, the fangirling, the fanboying, I'm sure was going on. It, it's only natural. It is meeting your idol. You, of course, of course, you would squee both internally and externally. Hands are cold, always cold, but a woman's hands are. You gotta I work like on that song. You gotta work on that impression, man. That one's your weakest one yet. Oh no, that was really good. I like that song. I thought it was pretty good. It was a okay. good song. It's new. Yeah, <laughs> a new EP. Get it on iTunes. I, I'm a All ma- right, then I'm... we cut to the Riverlands, where the Brotherhood Without Banners is showing up to a farmhouse, which. Um, Beric Dondarrion points out seems to be deserted. Um, uh, but we've didn't seen they go this, into the house? We've seen uh, this well, farmhouse before. Yeah, we. Yeah, and you know you can kind of tell from Sandor's face that he recognizes it, and we get that confirmation when I believe it was Beric Dondarrion at, says, you know, maybe they have ale, and he just goes, they don't. Mm-hmm. Another thing I like about this sort of scene where they're coming up on the farmhouse is Thoros Amir, always the generous drunk, offers some rum to Sandor, and he just dismissively says, shit's too sweet. <laughs> oh, Sandor is a national treasure. I love the hounds so much. Uh, also, uh, favorite line alert, uh, Sandor looks at Thoros and says, you bald cunt, you think you're fooling anybody with that top knot? <laughs> it's a great line. It's a great line. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that was pretty good. So they go into the farmhouse, and uh, you see a uh, two dead bodies in the corner. Uh, Beric posits to Sandor, how do you think they died? Sandor says it doesn't matter. Beric says, uh, you know, father holding his daughter uh, with covered in blood with a knife at their feet. Uh, my guess is they're starving, and he didn't want his daughter to suffer, so he ended it for both of them, which, if you remember back to season three, 
Uh, Sandor long? came upon this farmhouse with Arya and um, ate uh, their food, uh, talked to the guy. The guy seemed like a really good guy. And uh, at the end, he knocked him out and took all his money. So, you know, you got to think Sandor is feeling a little bit of guilt here. I mean, it's likely the farmer would have died and his daughter would have died anyway, but they certainly um, they, it spelled their doom faster that Sandor took all their money. Yeah, I appreciate this scene just to show how damn destructive winter is for the Seven Kingdoms. I mean, they've been very much focusing on the Lord's politics, on the various people who've already taken all the food and have vast stores. But for the average citizen out here, a multi-year winter, you die. Everyone dies. The, ma the level of destruction that would happen from these kind of winter actually coming is just nightmarish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot more of that in season eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as winter is full, not only here, but the zombies are coming with it. They sit down at a table. Sandor explain, uh, explains to Beric Dondarrion what a boring, bland motherfucker that he is. He just says, I don't like you, I don't hate you, you're just boring. Mm -hmm. Which, uh, Cracks Beric Dondarrion up, cracks Thoris up. Thoris is in the corner making a fire. Um, he finally asked Beric, if you're so boring and you're so not special, why does the Lord keep bringing you back? Mm -hmm. Beric says, uh, you know, don't you think I ask myself that every day? I don't know. At what point? At that point, Thoris asks Sandor to come over to the fire. We have a favorite line alert. Um, it's my fucking luck I end up with a bunch of fire worshippers. <laughs> it is, Hound. It is. Which, uh, Beric responds something along the lines of, what, poetic justice or, you know, punishment for your sins or something along those lines? I can't remember exactly what he says, but it was a good response to it as well. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, the Sandor goes over to the flames. Um, Thoros asks what he sees. And Sandor explains that he sees an army of the dead. Uh, thousands of them marching uh, to a castle by the sea. So at this point, we know enough to know that it's in all likelihood the Night's King and his army are marching toward Eastwatch. Which, again, we saw how much Melisandre struggled to get accuracy with her visions, that even if what she saw, she couldn't necessarily interpret it correctly. Sandor, day one, he is right there with reading the flames. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's like, he's like Rey from Star Wars, the Red God. That, like, that, that is a good reference. Tangent. I, Star Wars cracks me up. It's like Luke, Luke, it took three films, and Ray, it took 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. They've had to speed things a lot. Though, to be fair, we've seen before in the show that those who have endured a particular form of trauma are often more open to magic, or often more in touch with it. Sandor has been touched by fire. Perhaps this gives him a level of connection that most of the other Red Priests lack. Yeah, I, I could draw a parallel there to Arya. It seemed like she, her faceless men training went pretty fast as well. Yeah, but I don't like that one at all as much, but we'll talk about that. All right. Um, then uh, they all go to sleep. Uh, Thoris wakes up. Uh, it's, I think it's nighttime still. He goes outside, uh, hears a sound, draws a sword, but he sees that it's just Sandor, and he's digging a grave for the farmer and his daughter. Um, yep. Thoros uh, says, you knew these people, and Sandor said something like, well, I sort of know him, not really. Mm -hmm. uh, Thoros uh, helps Sandor dig the graves. At the end, Sandor tries to say the words of... Um, the seven gods, of course he doesn't know them, and then he just says, I'm sorry, you're dead. End of scene. Now, you, you, before you get going here, mm -hmm. I like this scene for multiple reasons, yes. but I do have a little quibble. What? Uh, I'll say my quibble first. What is your quibble? If any of the people who are inside asleep would wake up in the middle of the night, don't you think it wouldn't be Thoris? No, Thoris would be but a he, little... If he, 
Yeah. He's hammered every night. Like, wouldn't yeah. he just pass out? Like, wouldn't it be Barrick who would wake up? You know, perhaps he's, you know, the red gods giving him visions even in his sleep. But yes, the amount of rum that man was drinking in every single scene he was in would render him in a stupor. He wouldn't be like, oh, I'm the I'm the one that hears the threat, right? He's, he's the security guard. Give me a break. Anyway, stuff I like about the scene, I think it's beautifully shot. Yes. I like that it's a humanizing moment for Sandor, uh, so. which that arc is continuing to play out, and it's really fulfilling for me. And I like it's a nod to the books that Sandor is – uh, the Gravedigger. Yes, and I, I very much enjoyed this scene. I think this is an example of even when the show goes in a different direction from the books, and even leaves scenes that I very much like from the books, it does very well for them in terms of expanding them, referencing them, and growing from them. I, I love this scene a lot. I would offer one sidebar quibble. Have you ever tried to dig a hole in the middle of the winter in the ground? I don't, yes, I have. I have tried. I tried it last year. Um, uh, to all my friends, uh, podcast listeners, I have chickens. One of my chickens died. I tried to dig it a grave. Could not do it. Ground, when it gets cold, gets really, really hard to disturb. At this point, the ground would basically be permafrost. I know Sandor's strong, but his ability to dig a hole in the middle of the winter is questionable at best. Now, he is in a farmhouse, so do you think maybe there was like a pick that he could have used to break up the ground a little bit before he started digging? It's possible. We didn't see it. I'm not sure. Uh, I think it would have been simpler and probably, well, he doesn't know what's coming, but probably would have been better if he burned the bodies anyway. But he dug a hole. Fine. I'll go along with it. He's super strong. Well, that would have been that would have been not on brand for Sandor to, to go default to. I'm going to light a fire. Very okay. That's a very good point. OK, go back to Old Town. Um, Sam, uh, Gilly, um, the baby Sam are looking at the text that Sam uh, stole. Uh, in the previous scene, we didn't cover that, but Sam pre- did in the previous scene, he, he stole the keys of a maester who was sleeping and stole some texts. Mm-hmm. He's going over them uh, with Gilly and baby Sam. Gilly uh, seems to enjoy reading now. Uh, I think her newfound skill and attribute is getting to uh, – she's, she's flexing that muscle a little bit. And Sam discovers uh, a map of Dragonstone that indicates that they have a key for Dragonglass. Mm-hmm. All right. Beef with Sam here. I think everybody likes Sam, right? I don't hear too many hot takes of people who don't like Sam. What do you think? I, Sam is beloved. He is, you know, our he is the representative of the average reader in the text in terms of the wishing to do well, wishing to contribute to the story, wishing to have a role. I, I, I very much enjoy Sam. But well, there's – there's Here's where he's stupid because as soon as he sees it, he goes, Stan has told me. Uh, Stannis was he, – he was the lord of Dragonstone. Do you think he didn't know that there were dragon glass? Did you just dismiss what Stannis told you? And now you seem surprised that what he told you was correct? Give me a break. Yeah, no, you need to respect King Stannis. No, no Stannis respect. No Stannis respect at all. It's just sad. The show just – I, I, I find it interesting the show even bothered to mention it. Yeah. Well, I think they were trying to show a little bit of consistency because Stannis totally would – because – John told Stannis that Dragonglass. Remember that there was that whole scene, yeah, where John was talking to Stannis. He says Dragonglass will kill him, and Stannis is like, "We got a barrel of that on Dragonstone." And then he sent a raven saying, "Hey, mine all the." Even better, that was Sam. That was the conversation with Stannis for that. For Sam. Ah, okay, all right. So they're they're bow tying that in. Yeah, you're you're right. And I know why they referenced it, but it's oddly dumb for Sam that he just apparently completely forgot about that until right now. Yeah. Very stupid. No respect for King Stannis. I can tell the listeners right now I'm doing this podcast with a Stannis um, Flaming Heart sigil shirt. I have declared for King Stannis. This is known. It is known throughout the universe. 
Um, and you will hear me be a Stannis apologist through these podcasts. Sorry in advance. Yeah, I think it was season five when Stannis left the scene. When that happened, we had like a two-hour commiseration call of where I was just consoling you that it's not happening in the book. Don't worry. It's not happening in the book. It's not happening in the book. It's not just happening. Just keep repeating I say it. that three times before I go to bed every night. Uh, all right. Well, then Sam sends a raven to John to tell him about the, the dragon glass at Dragonstone. And then we see Sam, who is back at his chores, and he's feeding people who seem to be locked away uh, in individual either prisons or containment centers. And he's going to – he opens one. He's going to put the porridge or shit or whatever it is into the uh, into the containment center, and the arm just juts out, and he has to startle back. Um, and then we hear the dulcet tones of Jorah Mormont. God, that man has asking, a voice. Asking, has she come yet? Who? The Dragon Queen. Daenerys Targaryen. I, I, I haven't heard anything. Here's my beef here. Of course Jorah wants to know about Danny. That's his love of his life. It's his whole purpose, his whole mission. It's the only reason he's trying to get better. Why did he have to jut his hand out and almost give Sam grayscale? I mean, it, it could be an implication that he's starting to go all stone manny. I mean, we've seen before that once grayscale gets particularly progressed, it starts to affect the mind and consciousness. But they don't keep to that later in the season, so exactly. it, it's intended to be, I guess, just a jump scare. I thought that was that was definitely um, a tick in the uh, in the negative column there for Jorah. No, Coming I mean, within inches of giving Sam grayscale. And I would be perfectly okay with it, and I thought it was a very interesting, compelling scene if they went differently with it later on. If they actually showed Jorah as bearing some lasting harm from his grayscale infection. If he is changed, if he is broken in some ways, if his reun- reunion with Danny is in some ways traumatic for them both to see how he is restored but never completely. This could be interesting setting that up for it, but they just really didn't go in that direction, and I find that disappointing. Yeah, so do I. Anyway, we leave Old Town, and now we are where we left Danny at the end of Season 6, finally. Mm-hmm. She is on a ship. She is landing at Dragonstone. She's got her posse with her. Tyrion, Varys, Grey Worm, Missandei, they're in a small boat. They clearly are at the front of the uh, of her arm, of her, her fleet, and they're Go up onto the beach. Uh, Danny gets out, I believe, first. Uh, walks up a little bit, kneels down, and touches the sand. It's supposed to be a touching moment. She's finally at Westeros. She's finally at what she considers her homeland. And they begin the walk toward Dragonstone. All without a line of dialogue for this entire. This is almost like a six or seven minute scene, I think. So again, this is a. I think the second scene, what third scene they've done this episode of where there's no dialogue for an extended period. And I was okay with that because of just how good the score is for this scene. The, the score and the visuals, my God, did they make a beautiful Dragonstone this season. Yes, but possibly not a realistic Dragonstone, but we'll get to that in Book Nerd Pitching. Anyway, uh, Danny walks up to the uh, the doors of Dragonstone, which apparently you can just push open. I didn't know this before, but all they did is just push them open, so yeah, easy enough. I mean, it wasn't even a lock. There's no lock. You I mean, push him up. Jamie did set this up earlier that Stannis had abandoned Dragonstone, which we're going to talk about that in Book Nerd Bitching. Um, so I guess he also kindly decided not to lock the doors either when he left. Yeah, it's like you're going in a hotel. You know, like you go in a hotel, the, the doors just kind of swing open. That, no that, problem. That's how that goes at any point. Anyone could be in there. No worries. They swing open, and Danny begins. Uh, the hike of a lifetime. I mean, the, the walk to get to this thing uh, is insane. 
Uh, it looks even to be longer than the the walk to get into the Erie, which that's not consistent with the books, but it's a very long walk. Mm-hmm. They make their way up with Raymond Waldy's beautiful score playing in the background. The dragon's flying overhead. Everything looks great. She gets into uh, Dragonstone, it seems like. She walks into one of the first rooms. She looks up. She sees a dusty, dingy Stannis banner. R.I.P. King Stannis pulls it down, doesn't give it a second thought. And walks into the throne room. This is the first time we've seen the Dragonstone th- throne room. I thought the show did a really, really good job with this set uh, in looking at the behind-the-scenes information. I know that they actually made this from scratch, mm-hmm. which I thought was really impressive. Spencer, your thoughts? I had no... I'd never really thought about the throne of the Targaryens in Dragonstone, um, and the, even the throne room before. I never really had a visual of it, because I don't even think any of the scenes... Many of the scenes involving Stannis and Dragonstone depicted. He's—I ne- don't think he likes to hold court in there. So I found it beautiful. I found it all—it fits this very magical, otherworldly theme that they're going for all of Dragonstone. That this is a land of magic. This is what the Targaryens brought to Westeros from far beyond the sea. It isn't necessarily realistic. It isn't necessarily following to the same rules that we do. Because you look at like the blocks of the stonework that's going in that room. There are no edges. It is this, like a single uncut wall that they simply carved going up into the stratosphere. It's yeah. beautifully otherworldly. I love the scene, the um, the set they constructed for it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely definitely a better throne than the Iron Throne. Uh, Just yeah. aesthetically. The Iron Throne was back in season one. The budget wasn't as impressive. If they made it now, it would actually be the towering edifice of Sharpie pain that it is in the books. Oh yeah, yeah. The the pictures of the Iron Throne from both the World of Ice and Fire, and then some of like the calendars and other associated material released under the Song and Ice and Fire brand is beautiful. I really like it. But anyway, point being, show did a really good job with this set. Danny then walks into a room we've seen before. It's a table uh, that King Stannis used to use to devise his military strategy, and we know that Aegon Targaryen used it to devise his takeover of Westeros during the First Conquest. They start cleaning it up a little bit. They have a little conversation about the table. Danny turns around where she's at the head of the table, says, shall we begin? Smash cut to the credits, episode over. Yeah, which I thought was a powerful way to end this first episode in terms of we've now set the stage, we know where our characters are, let it all begin. Okay. Uh, episode over. Now we go to anything you want to say, just writ large about the episode before we jump into our, our next segment. I mean, we're, we're going to discuss the full season as we get through it and where it succeeded and where it failed. I thought this first episode was very hopeful in terms of what the show was accompl- what the show was going for, in terms of what the season was going to bring. I thought it was setting all the pieces, doing several fan servicey moments. I left this episode quite spirits lifted as to what was going to be accomplished this season. I did too, but I do think one of the things that they did is all the scenes with Danny, which wasn't many, just at the end, the costumes, the the way it's shot, the weather, the castle, everything is gray and dark as opposed to the vibrant colors Hmm. that she was in when she was, you know, in Essos. And I think they did that on purpose, basically saying, okay, you're here, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah. Which, I think that, that they were making an artistic choice there to signal to the audience, Danny's going to hurt a little bit for a while. It's not She's not just going to roll up and crush everybody, and that does bear out later. So uh, good move there. I mm-hmm. agree with you. Like the episode. I uh, was ho- hopeful for the season when I saw it. 
Uh, and now we can jump into our next segment, which is the foundational scene of the episode and the best scene of the episode. Spencer, do you want to explain the difference? Well, I mean, foundational scene is a scene that really sets the grounds for where the show is going to go. Where either for a particular character or for the various themes of the show, it hits a key point upon which everything else is going to be built in terms of expanding from it, in terms of setting where a character is or has grown and where they're going to go from here. So it's a very plot-important scene in terms of giving us direction to go for, uh, for the rest of the, of the season. Best scene is just pure joy in terms of there's, there's less of a criteria, there's less of a structure attached behind it. It's either a scene that we thought was incredibly well filmed or just a triumphal moment for either the characters and the fans in terms of what it gave us that we so often desired. Do, now, you, uh, do you have any preferred, uh, preferences for this? And I'm delaying giving you mine because I have to go back through my notes as I'm talking to you. Oh, yeah, sure. I can buy a little time here. I would say that we have to at least give Sam coming across the Dragonglass uh, knowledge of Dragonstone in the book that Stannis had already told him, which we covered that, is probably one of the foundational episodes because it is a, a piece of information that John is going to get that really changes, I think, his approach. I'm not sure that he would have gone to Daenerys if he didn't know there was Dragonglass there. Um, and, it, you know, he does eventually mine it, and that is clearly going to be a, a big part of how everyone fights the White Walkers in Season 8. So it was a small point, it was a quick scene, but I did think it set the stage for some really important events to occur going forward. And I think... Best scene? Mm-hmm. Um, I, my favorite scene was probably the cold opening. I like the, the phrase of the Riverlands. I thought the actor, I can't remember his name, who is Walter Frey, who was also in Harry Potter... I thought he did a really good job of starting as the character that he already established as Walter Frey and then moving to something different. By the time he was toward the end of that monologue, before the Lucha Libre came out, it was a different character. He was he was being somebody different, and mm-hmm. I thought that was great acting. Of course, you know, you cheer the fact that Frey's finally got theirs, the Red Wedding is avenged. I thought it was really well done. Okay. And I, I think I, your foundational scene is very much a direction for where the show is going to go, where we've been pondering for many seasons of, how do we defeat the literal zombie apocalypse in a medieval setting? And this episode gives us a direction of, okay, here is their lifeline, here is their ace in the hole they're going to pull out. So they set that up, that little scene with, that little scene with Sam, as here's the direction they're going to follow. Also, the scene, they're going to hit this more over the course of the season, but Sam and his books and the knowledge that he acquires from them is going to reveal several other secrets and several other key key tidbits to the characters as we go on. So them setting that up now in terms of he has these scrolls, he has the secret knowledge, and he's providing that lifeline is going to hit several points over the course of the season about what the characters need to survive and what knowledge they're going to have that opens up the world to them. Um, So as a plot foundational, I thought that was very good. In terms of character foundational, two of my favorites were both a moment of just how a character has not changed despite the world uh, being brought upon him and how another character has changed as a result of the world being brought upon him. Uh, John holding court with the, North, with the Northern and Vale lords and the wildlings, keeping to his values as a Stark, keeping to the principles despite everything else the world's been upon him, despite direct opposition from his own sister there sitting next to him, and giving the Umbers and the Karstarks back their lives, giving them pride again in service to the north giving them everything again a certain sense of respect and a certain sense of respect once more it almost reminds me of um there was an advice line in uh schindler's list of when schindler's talking to uh, amon geth and tells him that the most powerful thing you can do is give back a man's life when he's utterly certain you're going to take it from him 
And that scene with John was just so very much indicative of how the Starks have taken the loyalty of the North in a way that can never fully be uh, banished, can never be fully be lost. So I love that scene for how true it was to the character and how much it represents that John is timeless. John is going to be John no matter what the world throws upon him. And that utter resistance in spite of possibly their own self-preservation is something that I think we can admire about the Starks at the same time we can condemn them for it. Um, other scene would be uh, Sandor in terms of, we've always known that there's been many layers to Sandor, but this is one of the first few moments where we saw him show honest-to-God regret and honest-to-God sadness and express it out with respect to how he feels personal responsibility and sorrow for what happened to this family, whether whether he actually was responsible or not. But that scene with him and Thoros um, bearing the two of them together, both for its references to the book and also just for how far it's shown that Sandor has become a much more healed and complete character was just very foundational for what this character has become now and where he's going. Um, best scene? I Hold think... on, let's, let's, let's crown the foundational scene. Okay. I think I'm going to propose we split it mm-hmm. between foundational from a plot perspective and foundational from a character perspective. I would propose foundation from a plot perspective, the Sam scene. Yeah. From it, a character perspective, I agree with you, the Sandor scene, the Gravedigger scene, loved it. Yeah, I, I, th- I think those win in my mind. They were very well done. Se- well, I mean, the Sam scene, I wouldn't necessarily say was the best well done scene or that necessarily impressive. It certainly wasn't cheerworthy, but it gave, definitely set the direction for the plot. So I think it definitely deserves the award. Um, yep. best, best scene. Best scene. I don't know what this says about how I view or appreciate the show now, but I really liked all the scenes that didn't have dialogue. Um, I found the scene with Danny at the Damn. end. Damn. Damn. I I don't know what that says Ooh. about me, but throwing shade, Spencer with the hot take. That's what I'm I here like for. Show when they don't talk. But the scene at the end with Danny coming home, I've got plot and logical quibbles with it out the wazoo, but it does what the show does so incredibly well, even at this stage of the show, of where it is so beautifully filmed, it is so perfectly linked with the music, it is so triumphal. This is Danny truly returning to her legacy. This is her fulfilling the role of Aegon Targaryen in the new age, of coming back to her home to conquer the world beyond it. It is amazing, it is beautiful, it is triumphant, it is just cinematography out the wazoo. So I would offer that scene as best just because of how well done it is. All right. I'm willing to give you the the Danny scene is the best scene. Uh, I like the Frey scene, I thought, just because of the acting, but I thought, yeah, from a cinematography perspective, from set, costume, music, uh, how they shoot it when you got the drones going everywhere, uh, I'm sure it was a logistical nightmare to pull off. It was really well done, and uh, it hit the feels. Yeah, it, it also harkens to so many wonderful historical moments of various you know, rulers, various kings, various generals returning home to reclaim where they are. It's Danny pulling off her, uh, what was it? Uh, Henry Tudor. It's Danny pulling off her uh, General MacArthur. It, it, it's just a wonderfully powerful Show thing. Off. <laughs> Sorry, I like my history. All right, well, let's move to favorite lines. For favorite lines, I'll give one, you give one, I give one, you give one. Total of four, and then we pick a winner. Oh, we got options. This, this, this episode did have, a, I mean, as much as I just utterly bashed the dialogue, there were a lot of really nice, quotable lines this episode. Yeah, there was. That's why I was so surprised you completely shit on the show right there. But. I, I I enjoyed doing it. I thought it was a good line on my part. And I put it forward as a nomination. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the favorite line of the episode is what you did in the podcast. Thank you. I, I appreciate the title. 
favorite? Start with one. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I may have to name more than four because I'm just going through my notes as I do them. But let's see here. Um, okay. We didn't mention this one as we were going through it, but I liked it just because of how much I miss Ned Stark, of where John and Sansa are talking with each other. And John, they're, and Sansa does, does, as you said, she's doing very back and forth. She's giving and she's taking, probably way too much taking before she's giving, in terms of telling John what she thinks. And she ends a conversation with but, and John interrupts her and says, Father always said that everything before the word but is horse shit. And I... That's pretty good. That, that was such just a wonderful uh, Ned Northern line. So I wouldn't say it was the best, but it's one that touched me, just because any reference to Ned just makes me happy at this point in the show. I don't have kids yet, but but Papa Lee is going to do that. Oh, please I'm totally going to use that line. It's, a, it's, a, it's really like a brilliant line. It's, it's totally true. If somebody's like, blah, 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 but you're like, oh, come on. Yeah. So I will offer that one. I don't think it's the best, but it's one that personally touched me. Okay. I'm going right off the gate. I'm going hot. Looks like we're the Night's Watch now. <laughs> that is a great line with Norman. It truly is. It's very much in character. He would say that with just utter pride. Oh, right in front of all the Northern Lords. Yeah. He did wild things their entire life and revered the Night's Watch. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's great line. Great line. Very great. Um, okay, response to that. I referenced it earlier. I loved it because I don't think they necessarily knew what they were doing with Euron last season, but this season they've made him just 95% swagger as a person. So his, Joel Embiid, I am the process. Yeah, I'm going to need to look up who the hell that is to understand this. Um, but his line... His line, looking looking Jamie right in the damn eye and said, so here I am with a thousand ships and two good hands, is just delightful. It is just shade being tossed by the handful right, in, right at him. I like that one. That one's very, very good. I'm going to go a little more serious here. A okay. A little more funny. Um, they've won wolf alive and sheep are never safe. Mm-hmm. And very good. That, that was a good line, and it very much embodies the revenge that... Uh, Arya wants in that particular moment. She wants them to feel that this is not just her getting her pound of flesh. This is the Starks returned, and she has brought the pack with her. Uh, I, I know you mentioned, can we, can we make it six? Because I got, I got one more I want to do. Sure, and I got one more too. Okay. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm stealing this from you. If I am, I can do a different one. But you think you're fooling anyone with that top knot? Bald cunt. Great. Love that one. It's just such pure one. Sandor. Yeah, that's good. And I'm going to end it with, you're a lucky man. <sighs> you, you're two separate Tormund lines. You loved him this episode. Tormund, Tormund was on fire this episode. We don't have the segment, but if we're picking winners of the episode, I would have voted for Tormund. Just because to be able to stand in front of all the Northern Lords and say, yeah, I'm your Night's Watch. Oh, oh my God, boss move. Yeah. Alpha move, etc. Very much so, Remus. Now, you get to pick. You are the sole arbiter of what the best line was. That is right. I am the Lord of the Favorite Line segment. Favorite line is... You got to guess what I'm going to say? No, I'm not going to guess. No no dramatic tension here. You're in charge. (laughs) Oh, come on. It's got to be... Looks like we're the Night's Watch now. Yes, yes, it was great. Gotta be. My favorite line of the episode could be my favorite line of the season. We will see. Um, now we turn to a little segment we call Book Nerd Bitching. Take it away, Spencer. I don't know how little it's going to be. I've got some bitching. I'm sure you do too. Let's not, you know, let's not obscure this. You've read the books. You've liked the books. You know the books damn near as well as I do. So that's not true. I know I know the books, but not as well as you. Okay. Well, we're, well I'm just going to go through vaguely in order um, and just reference a few scenes that I either thought were, were 
inconsistent with the books in a way I thought that was worse, or in some ways even inconsistent with the show itself in terms of what they portrayed and what they've set up. Um, going early, and this is just real, just pure bitching, but correct me if I'm wrong, isn't Littlefinger the Lord of the Riverlands? Didn't they give him Hall and name him Lord of the Riverlands thanks to his help in terms of setting up everything that happened over the course of the Lannisters' success? So when Walder Frey is saying, you know, we're the Lord of the Riverlands, is that even show consistent? I don't know the answer to that. <clears throat> uh, it, it, it's, I know that he got here in Hall. I'm not sure they made him Lord of the Riverlands. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it does not particularly matter. In the books, they even kind of struggle in terms of thinking where they are. They're literally just Lords of River Run rather than Lords of the Riverlands, but it doesn't matter. Real book nerd bitching there. But Arya as a faceless man. I have never particularly thought that the show's betrayal of Arya's training as a faceless man or even just setting up what she's capable of has been very well done. I mean, previously we thought that with her using different faces, like when she kills Walder for last season, okay, maybe she brought a couple with her. Um, because we saw nothing to suggest she knows how to actually produce a face. She ba barely even saw them remove a face one time in terms of setting up how they construct these, mask, uh, these masks and role-assuming forms that they're capable of. You mean when she was down in Guadalajara learning how to do Hurricane Runners off the top rope? We're keeping this going, aren't we? Learning, learning how to do the, the, the flying elbow off the top of the steel cage? That didn't you didn't buy, you didn't you didn't buy that? All we saw we saw a whole season of her getting hit with sticks, and now she's the greatest assassin in the world. We had no setup for any of this. We had no basis. And that's, to... and that's why I drew the parallel earlier in the episode, you know, saying that like, hey, we have seen, you know, really sort of inconsistent training montages or training segments where you, you have a very small amount of training and all of a sudden the person is like an expert because they, they did do that with Arya. I agree with you. And I, I mean, it could be fine if that's the direction they want to go for with her. It's obviously not consistent with the books, whatever. We don't know fully what the books are going to do yet. She's still in the House of Black and White in the books, but it just doesn't feel like they've all set up or give us any realm of understanding what Arya's capable of. Last season, the last we saw of her, she was a scared young girl running away from other assassins. They got kind of lucky in ambushing one. This season, she is the friggin' Terminator. It's... I just don't know where she made the leap from being still a rough trainee who uses the darkness to ambush a superior combatant to now being capable of whatever they need her to to advance the plot. And I find that disappointing. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Northern Women Tradition, we talked about that briefly in there. I don't think it was necessarily a surprise, it should have been quite as surprising to Northern Lords that the, um, women are capable of war and engaging in war. The Mormonts and other Northern groups have been having female soldiers for generations. So I don't find that, I, I, I suppose you noted the better distinction there is that Lord Glover seems to be not objecting at the idea of women fighting, he seems to be objecting at the idea of young girls fighting. You think yeah, that's, a that's what I was going to say. I don't think they had a problem with the women. I think it was, because he, he specifically said, you want me to put a spear in my granddaughter's hand. Mm -hmm. One thing I find here is that um, in the season that led up to John's assassination, they did very little to set up why he was being killed, other than that the rest of the Night's Watch just didn't particularly like him. In the books, they go into an entire book discussing how John is continually, slowly expanding the Wildling's role with respect to the Night's Watch. He's increasingly making decisions that go against their traditions with doing very little to set them up. I thought in some ways they tried to hammer a, almost a whole book or a whole season of John's decision-making with respect to the Wildlings into one scene of him saying, okay, you're the Night's Watch now. And everyone just kind of goes along with it. 
no one really objects. No one's really raising any stink about the fact that the wildlings, their great enemy for time immemorial, is here among us sitting at the same table. Do, do you feel that's realistic, or do you think the show's just kind of necessarily brushing over the tensions that would be inherently playing out between these people? Two things. One is I'm sure that there are tensions there, but I think they all know better than to bring them up to John. So I don't think in that room... <clears throat> in that room at that time? Anybody's going to bring that up. Okay. Second, they wouldn't be sitting there without the wildlings, and they all know it. Because the bulk of the, the forces that John had was the wildlings, and they fought and they died to give the Starks back their home. Though the, all, the vast 90% of more than that probably, 95% of the people being represented in that room are Knights of the Vale or Northern Lords who weren't there at that battle. So... Do, are they honorable enough to give a shit about how the wildlings suffered 50% casualties fighting for John? I would I would imagine if it ever came up off you know off screen, John reminded them of that fact in perpetuity. I'm huh. sure that John anytime anybody said anything about the wildlings, John jumped on their ass and said, Let me tell you something. If not for them, we would not be here. They suffered, they fought, and they died for Northernmen. Very possible. Okay. This is a scene that I do actually bitch about, and this is a notable one. Why did they pick the Umbers to be a traitorous house in the show? I don't know. I really don't like that. I, mean, I agree with you. The Umbers in the books are the most loyal beyond all of all the Northern Houses. Even the Umbers that are working for the side of the uh, Lannisters and the Boltons are actively conspiring against them. The fact that they even made small John Umber, he of John's personal bodyguard, now here of Rob's personal bodyguard in the books, he who picked up a chair and threw it over him to protect it during the Red Wedding, as the enemy leader of the Umber House, it hurts me. I don't know why they pick them other than, oh, we need to think of a northern house that the fan base knows. Uh, sure, we'll pick the Umbers. Ow! Why? Well, the, you know, the, the stuff that you're referencing about the Umbers that make it inconsistent for them to be traitorous to the Starks is not really played out on the screen. All we really see about the Umbers is we see Big John Umber really be quite an asshole to Rob, and not until Greywin bites half his hand off does he actually settle down. And then we never see him again, which is disappointing that actor got to get a role in a different show, because he was great for that role. Oh, man, was he good. Uh, but, I mean, again, this is book nerd bitching. They picked the Umbers in particular because it was a house that they actually named. It was a house that we actually know on the show. So it, it can make a certain degree of sense. But the fact that they pick them just hurts me as a book nerd fan, just because they are the greatest house in terms of loyalty to the Starks. Well, debating, separating the Mandrillies, who've also been basically cut from the show. I did like that they named the youngest Umber Ned. That is not in the book. I do like how that just ties into how the Umber family has so long been loyal to the Starks that they even named their children after Eddard. So that it, Ooh, so you went the other way with book nerd bitching. You book, should give the show a little credit there. Book nerd bitching can go both ways. This is I can at times reference things that I like that they additioned. I can at times reference things I didn't like. I like that oh, they I brought that in. I think it's in some ways just shows how inconsistent the decision making of small John of small John Umber was in the show. That his fa his father his family was so loyal and so beholden to the Starks that they named their grandchildren after them. But. Fine, whatever. It's a night. It's a nice little addition that the books didn't have, and I double check that. They're, they we don't know the names of the children, so I'm fine with canonically naming that kid Ned. Um, you remember that Alice Carstark, who they did specifically name it, whereas Alice Carstark was in the books. Remember that? Yes. She in the books plays a role of a a Carstark who is almost is very much reminds John of Arya, 
in terms of she's very independent, she's very determined, she's very loyal to the Stark family, in contrast to the Karstarks. She goes up to John and marries into a wildling noble house so as to give her a claim to retake the Karstark name. It's a wonderful role. It's a wonderful expansion for a character. It's a nice, independent, strong female character in the books. Who gets a very token reference here in just naming her Alice Karstark casually? So I miss that her arc was cut from the books. I know they've got to heavily minimize things to uh, get things to the screen, but it was a little disappointing. Well, they could have given her, like, a line, right? When, like, Liana Mormont stands up and goes, I don't need your permission to defend the North. She could have stood up and be like, yeah! <laughs> Something. It would have been nice. Um, okay, we're doing a lot of book nerd bitching. We can, we can tone this down for next time, but just going through it. Uh, Sansa as a character. So I would offer that Sansa as a character, for what they've done with her, is one of the most completely different from the books of any of the major characters on the show. Well, that's because they gave her a whole different storyline. Well, yes, I mean, that, they, that they would contribute to a whole it. Different character. Yeah, they, they, they consolidated and created a whole different character. They say that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, she, Sansa in the books is still very much with Littlefinger, learning from Littlefinger, becoming, in many ways, Littlefinger's protege. Littlefinger in the books is not dumb enough to send her halfway around the world when she is his greatest ace in the whole trump card that he could possibly have. Um, so Watch that phrase. What'd you say? I said, watch that phrase. Oh, trump card. Sorry. You know, it means many, it means other things than that. Um, but I, I, I don't necessarily object to what how the show has portrayed her in terms of how they're making her decision making. How, as you said, that she's pretty consistently angry, pissed, and unhappy for every scene that she's in. Because by combining her with Jane Poole, I cannot blame her for being angry and pissed and unhappy at every scene that she is in. She has gone through a trauma ringer almost beyond compare. I mean, it's her, pretty much her and Theon were best buddies for various moments last season because they had just suffered all that Ramsay is capable of. So I I prefer Sansa's arc in the books. I like the idea of her following Littlefinger. I like that Littlefinger has something to fucking do in the books in a way that he doesn't on the show. On the show, his role is basically to be snarky and make you question yourself, and that's about it. He's, not, he's lost most of his scheming from the earlier seasons. So I... I find her role consistent. I don't think I don't really have any objections for what they do with her on the show. I just miss her role with Littlefinger in terms of they're still engaging in vast schemes to actually have a reasonable means of taking over the world the way they seemingly want to. I think that by giving Sansa a different role, that they've kind of effectively run out of things to do with Littlefinger, and it's a disappointing use of what is otherwise a compelling character. I mean, how, how do you feel about what Littlefinger has done? This episode, or really even the last season or so. Other than bringing the Vale Knights, Littlefinger's just kind of been pretty surprisingly passive. Yeah, it's weird, because they set him up as this sort of, like, master, you know, uh, tactician, and brilliant playing mind games with people, and moving the chess pieces all around the board, and you're right, he really does kind of drop off. Um, Which ver happens to Varys, too. I don't, I don't know if they know what to do with their scheming characters, and even Tyrion this season has very little to do. I I think it's because we're getting to a point where there's less scheming and more just let's just fight. Uh, there is like what 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 is Littlefinger going to do other than bring the troops? What is Varys going to do other than stand next to Johnny D Danny while her dragons burn everybody? There's not a lot to do when you're in active open warfare. And, and, a war and, and if, if and if you were going to go down that route, I think it requires more episodes than they want to do. Very possible. It doesn't seem like the show really cares a damn about logistics or really cares a damn about how the armies or lords get to where they are, and so effectively the schemers have been kind of lost in that category too. Um. 
we talked about this. Is it reasonable at all for Jamie to say out, apparently truthfully, that Stannis left Dragonstone unoccupied? Well, I think that we can quibble about that. He probably did not leave it unoccupied. But when word of Stannis' death got to Dragonstone, I think they probably went back to the Stormlands, to their homes. Possibly. So I I don't think that the, the, the crew he left in Dragonstone, I do think he would leave a crew in Dragonstone, but I don't think that they would stay there after he's been defeated. But I follow that up, though. The point I'm getting to as well there is if they think it's unoccupied, why in the hell wouldn't they send like 500 guys to occupy it? It's Dragonstone. It is the basis for all of the naval forces on the eastern half of Westeros. It is a linchpin island to control friggin' King's Landing. I mean, the fact that they had they deemed Stan as such a big threat in season one was the fact that he controlled Dragonstone, which is like, what, a day and a half journey from King's Landing? It it does not make any sense to me that even if Stannis' forces had if he hadn't left any forces, or even if they'd abandoned the post after they heard Stannis had died that the Lannisters or anyone else wouldn't have sent in a token force to occupy it. Well, maybe Cersei knew that the doors just opened if you pushed them. Uh, yeah, so you she, know. She, that... she, didn't, she didn't want her 500 people being sitting ducks. She uh, said, that, yeah, this is like, uh, it's like walking into the Ramada. I don't want to put anybody there. Yeah, that is a real weakness in the Targaryen defense strategy with that particular fort. You think Stannis, who's got a great deal of experience in siege defense, would have changed those doors once he moved in. Yeah, that that that's where I would land. I don't I don't quite have as much book nerd bitching as you do this episode or any episode, but I would say that their depiction of Dragonstone, while beautiful, is completely unrealistic when you talk about how it's fortified. I would say the same thing with Winterfell during the Battle of the Bastards in season six. Um, you mean to tell me all you need to do is crash through a wooden door? Like that's not that's ridiculous, obviously. But you know they have budget constraints, they have logistical constraints. So I understand. You know, you just have to roll with it on the show. Part of the reason I bitch about it is that they talk about to great detail in the books how hard a nut Dragonstone is to crack. Of course, Stannis very pointedly tells his lords, "Whether you've heard I'm dead or not, you fight for the cause I've said for you. You may hear I'm dead, and it may be true, but you keep fighting." As a result of that, the Northern Lords, the, the, the sorry, the um, Storm lords that are occupying Dragonstone, four stands in the books, best on the base, based on the best news that we have, fight tooth and friggin' nail to defend it when the uh, Tyrells try to take it over. And so when Danny walks in, you know, just perfectly coiffed hair and dress, blowing in the wind, with seemingly leading the first reconnaissance to see whether it's occupied or not, I didn't see any implication that there were any unsullied that gone ahead of her to see whether there's anyone there. She's out front with practically a target on her asking for an arrow if anyone happens to be there. But she goes in, utterly unharmed, walks straight up to the, drag to the table and says, let's plan out our invasion. The um, Loras Tyrell tries to do the same thing, gets three arrows in the chest, gets a stone break up, gets like his leg broken, gets stabbed, and gets boiling oil poured on him when he tries to do the same thing. So it's just an interesting point of contrast. Or did he? Or did he? You know, did he? it's left open whether that happened or not. We certainly don't see him again. It's possible that they're bluffing it all to confuse Cersei, but again, very different plot line in the books. But I found it just an interesting comparison of where Danny's confident enough that no one is there, that she just walks at the front with all of her senior advisors, with no one previously going in to investigate anything. Whereas in the books, it is actually a freaking castle. Uh, what else do I got? Uh, well, one last one I'll reference, and this is, I would put this in the good, in both the good and mixed feelings category, is the Gravedigger, the Gravedigger reference with the Hound, of where I 
we've talked about this before, of where I really like in some ways that the Hound was written out of the books. I like that he found a certain degree of peace. A little bit of explanation. The Hound in the books, after he goes off with Arya, disappears. We never, with any certainty, see the Hound again. We have no idea what happened to him. It's strongly implied that he died. We even have a character straight up say, straight up say that he died. But it is a very popular fan theory, which is seemingly directly referenced here, that in that same scene, he is a background character seemingly known as the Gravedigger, based on his description, based on the fact he bends down to pet a hound, based on the fact that his horse is right there. But I like that in some ways he was written out and has found a degree of peace because it seems like a poetic end to an otherwise tortured character. I like that he's found an opportunity to not be at the center stage of other people manipulating him for the various causes and ends. The show hasn't gone that route, and I'm okay with it, because I like the character that they've portrayed on the show. Um, what's the name of the actor? Like, Rory McGregor or something like that? Is a wonderful actor in the role. He does wonderfully on the show, and I adore him. And I like the scene. I like how they've played out his redemption through active action. So... I would put this forward as being a, a, a good adaptation by the show in terms of taking different events, taking characters they put in different... And then take our court, yeah. Okay, we're, now we're recording again. I think we lost you all for a second there. Um, where, where, what was the last part we heard? Uh, you started, um, you said, um, I like where Sandor... I, I like that Sandor went away in the books. I, I do. And you were going into that whole jack. Yeah, I appreciate the degree of peace that he's found. That in the books, he's effectively written out. He has either died or has found a certain degree of peace in assuming a role of a gravedinger in an isolated abbey. And I kind of enjoyed that a character who spent most of his life manipulated by lords that he disdains, a character who has existed on a certain degree of constant violent pain has found a degree of quiet peace. It's one of the few characters other than, like, we'll say, like, Hot Pie on the show that has actually been written out successfully and has maybe found their degree of center outside the violence and trauma of the politics of Westeros. So I, I like in some ways that he has succeeded by leaving. The books, the show hasn't done it that way. They're showing his redemption through active action to a certain degree. But this episode left me very hopeful for how they were depicting it. Or I like the, t the references to the Gravedigger. I like that he's grown as a character. I mean, I presented this as a foundational scene for his character just because of how much I enjoyed about it, how it depicted where he's going. So I would offer this as a, an, an adaptation of where I very much liked what the books did, but I can in no way condemn the show for how it's chosen to depict it. I've, I've liked the pairing of... Uh, the Hound with Barak and Thoros. I think they're in, make, they make a very interesting traveling group, and I only wish the season spent more time with them. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I love the Brotherhoods Without Banners. I was a little skeptical when they reintroduced them, um, but hey, it's uh, it's been interesting. It's been funny. They serve an important part of the plot, mm -hmm. uh, and I like what they've done with them. Uh, last bit of book nerd bitching. We already referenced this. How the hell did he build a thousand ships? I told you. Got that Amazon Prime. I mean, Got that two-day shipping. Hit it on Prime Day. In, in the books, uh, during the last Greyjoy Rebellion, which was about ten years before, uh, Stannis, utter, again, your Lord, your, your favorite character, Stannis, utterly crushed the Greyjoy fleet, destroyed the Iron Fleet damn near entirely. And they've had to, over the last ten years, be very slowly building it back to have any degree of fleet at all. And even then, his fleet, like any medieval levy, is just the various lords of the Iron Islands come together. The actual Iron Fleet is only a tiny component of that. So he's had, the Greyjoys have to, by pooling all the resources together over ten years, rebuild any degree of armada that they then can spring upon the world. In the show, which again doesn't give a damn about logistics anymore, 
he seemingly builds it overnight with Amazon Prime and video game cheat codes. And they just offer us nothing to justify that other than time is a time and resources are a very flexible thing in the show continuity. Yeah, that's a real that's a real weak point of the episode of the plot and the show in general, but it is what it is. We'll it, roll with it. I mean, it, the show at times feels like it needs to invent a solution for a problem that's presented itself without really having set up that solution before. And right. given the Greyjoys this massive fleet, they indicated that the Greyjoys were going to build it, not how they're going to build it, but the only reason they have it is because Danny has a massive fleet and she's got too many advantages, so let's give the other guys a massive fleet so they can counteract that. Right. All right, are we are we wrapping up here? I think we're coming to an end. Uh, anything else we need to talk about? I don't think so. Uh, like the episode, um, sets up for a good season. Uh, all right, no, I don't have anything else. I guess we'll uh, we'll talk episode two next week. Yeah, I mean, this is. I think we should definitely make the series of this, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed this. All right, thanks everybody for listening to GOT Got Questions podcast with Lee and Spencer. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.